0: Hey everybody, how's everybody doing? You guys have a great weekend, I hope. You know, uh, it's a great weekend to start summer, you know, lots of barbecues going on and things like that. Welcome, my name is Charlotte, I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Hots Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can get to you. We may not be able to get to you right away, but we can do that, because, the reason being, California is a big state, and so, you know, we might take us a while. But uh, what we have for you instead is we have five uh, mediums on staff who could call you and consult with you about what's going on. And in most cases, they can calm things down before we're able to get out there, which is really good, right? So, yeah, you can, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on TikTok. You can find us at YouTube. You can find us on Twitch. You can find us on Instagram. And how do you do that? Well, Facebook, we are California Haunts. Instagram, we are uh, we're Ghosty Gal, and that's all lowercase. Uh, Twitter, we are Cal Haunts. Twitch, we are Cal Haunts, and TikTok, we are California Haunts. So it's that easy. All right. If you're watching, and speaking of which, if you're watching from any of those today, especially Facebook, and you like what you see please be sure to give me a thumbs up, uh, give me a smiley face, give me a heart. Because what that does is that puts us into the algorithm of Facebook. There's algorithms at Facebook and YouTube and, and TikTok, which when you get those smiley faces, it puts you up further so that a lot of people can see you. So essentially every time we get one of those, it puts us into a better position for, for you know people outside of our audience here to, to see us. So if you'd like to do that, that'd be great. And also, if you like what you hear today and uh, and see today, you can also, if you haven't done so already, um, hit that follow button. I'd really appreciate it over at Facebook. And the same goes for YouTube. If you like what you hear today, uh, please subscribe. We have 621 videos sitting over at YouTube, and uh, they're all different topics. They're not only paranormal-themed topics. They're like they're like tonight's topic or, or like the uh, opioid pain thing we did the other night. I like to vary the topics of the shows because I'm a journalist and uh, that's what I like to do. I don't like to do the same topic all the time, so you could check that out. I've also taken the um, the liberty of moving things around because, like they, like I said, there's over 600 videos over there, and uh, it's kind of confusing when you go in on the main page because they're all they're all like bunched together. So what I've done is I've I've uh, put them into categories so you can find stuff easier. For instance, if you like listening to the shows with uh, media and Nancy Mats on Fridays. She has her own file uh, or folder that, that, that you can find. Or if you're into uh, UFOs and, and contactees, there's a file for that as well. So there's all kinds of stuff in there. There's cryptid files. So it makes it easier for you to find, you know, uh, the different shows you want to see. Okay, that being said, tonight we're doing something, we're gonna talk about something that I'm really interested in. I can remember I'm a backyard astronomer. I have always had a telescope. My dad, you know, always either had binoculars when I was real tiny as a kid. And then we expanded to a 4-inch telescope, and then that went to an 8-inch telescope, and then I ended up with a 12-inch telescope. And I used to sit out back, and I even had a camera on my 12-inch, so I would make my attempt at taking photos of Jupiter and all the different planets and stuff. And I'm really excited to have this gentleman on, Professor Stephen Kane. And uh, he's going to be talking about exoplanets and other celestial bodies, so it should be an interesting night. So without further ado, let me bring him in. Good evening, sir.
1: Hello, Charlotte. How are you doing? Oh, sorry, my chair just <laughs> <went back laughs> right at the right moment. That was perfect. Um I I don't think that was paranormal. I but... don't either.
0: You never know.
1: <laughs> anyway, um yes, thanks. Happy to be chatting with you.
0: Tell me about you, sir.
1: Oh, well, uh, so I'm a professor at University of California. Uh, I've um, I recently crossed a boundary where I've lived longer in the United States than outside the United States. As you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not native. Um, I grew up in outback Australia. And uh, where I lived, uh, I had access to spectacular night skies. I used to lie out on my trampoline during the 80s and just stare up at the night sky and, you know, ask a whole bunch of questions about what could be out there. Um, so that's what, uh, that's what really inspired me to go on this journey. Uh, and um, it just so happened that when I started grad school in the mid-90s, that's when we started to find planets around other stars. Uh, mm-hmm. Up until then, I'd just been obsessed with the solar system, completely obsessed, and still am. I mean, that's that's what I study now as well. But I mean, this opportunity to just look at an infinite number of planets and think about mm-hmm. those—it's uh, it's it's been a wild ride, shall we say? I mean, the last couple of decades. When you think about it, is I mean, it's I said mid nineties, we're approaching the mid twenty twenties, so that's almost right. thirty years. And well, yeah. these past 30 years, what we've accomplished as a civilization, it's pretty extraordinary when you think about it.
0: It is. And when you talk about, like, growing up at the outback and laying down and looking at the stars, I can I can understand that. I didn't grow up, like, like, like in the woods or anything or in the mountains, but I did. Um, I, I grew up in, you know, in, in, like, suburbia. So when I would look up, I would see the, the main stars, you know, where I could say, oh, yeah, there's Orion, you know, there's Orion, because I, I could pick out the main stars, the Big Dipper. But when I would go up to the mountains – I was totally confused. I would look up and I thought, wow, I can't tell where anything's at. It's not there, where there, I'm used to it.
1: There, there's an old story about um, from back in the 90s that there was a power outage in LA County and all of a sudden people could see the night sky in a way they couldn't before. And it precipitated a, an unprecedented amount of calls to 911 because <laughs> people, were just, people were freaked out. <laughs> what is all of that stuff? You know, so... Uh,
0: <laughs> I've been I'm in sensitive. areas, probably like your outback, I've been in areas where it looks like you could actually reach up and touch the stars.
1: Yeah, well, you know, that low, you know, I, st- I I still go to the Southern Hemisphere pretty regularly. I mean, of course, I go back to Australia from time to time. Uh, and occasionally I will take an American colleague with me who has never been to the Southern Hemisphere before. And the Southern Hemisphere... Uh, points more directly at the galactic center so uh there's there's a much better view there of of the milky way and so mm-hmm. if you go there during the northern hemisphere summer which is when the earth has the best view of the galactic center it can really it could really freak people out <laughs> like it, when i say i'd take american colleagues with me i mean astronomers right so so right. you think they would be used to this but um uh, no it can be quite uh, quite an awe-inspiring thing if you haven't seen that before.
0: Oh, it's breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. And like I yeah. said, you look up, because you are used to, like me living where I live, you know, and I'm so used because I, I can find the Pleiades, I can find, you know, I, I can find the occasional galaxy and stuff with my telescope, because I, you know, I have one of those telescopes that has the electronics on there, so I just got to punch the little numbers in, but still, I could still find stuff, but when I get up in the mountains, I'm just, it just amazes me. It's just, it's just, it's just like being in a... um it's a snow globe. That's what it reminds me of—being in a giant snow globe. Yeah,
1: and it's—I uh, it, uh, find it a, a really great moment to just kind of have big picture thoughts. You know, our uh-huh. place in the universe and how we really are. You know, Carl Sagan, of course, spoke a lot about this pale blue dot that we live on and uh-huh. um, this island of habitability, which is what I think a lot about. Uh, so, to so, yeah, it's uh, it's. it's Good to think about those things from time to time.
0: Now, what is the difference between an exoplanet and a planet?
1: Uh, well, so a, an exoplanet is a short uh, hand way of saying extrasolar planet, Okay. Uh, and so it's it, it's just kind of a, a nickname that has evolved through time, but. Um, extrasolar is referring to outside of our solar system in the same way as we would say extraterrestrial mean, means not from Earth. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, that, that's what an exoplanet is. Okay. just a planet orbiting another star.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now, I grew up with books. I'm not going to say how old I am. I'm old enough. <laughs> I grew up with the old encyclopedias. I remember around because I, I, I liked to devour books when I was a kid and read, especially about astronomy. You know, on the planets and all this, and I grew up at a time when the encyclopedias would say man will go to the moon. That tells you, you know, yeah. what it was like for me. That was well, the tail before they switched the encyclopedias over. It was real close to that time, you know.
1: Yeah. So, so I, I, for me, the and I'm t- it sounds like it was the same for you, which is that the yeah. the the internet for me was my family's collection of. Um, uh we had the world book encyclopedia you know those encyclopedia britannica whichever set right, you had right, and right. so i would just read a lot of those but more so i would go to my my grandmother's house and she had had some really old sized books and uh th- th- that's where it would um show the size of pluto as being bigger than the earth you know it's mm-hmm. um and, and and a lot of really interesting stuff one of the, because uh, as you may know one of the things that i study a lot is venus mm-hmm. and venus is really interesting because we didn't understand what the surface of venus was like until we went there but prior to that we thought there were animals living there and so you look at these science books from back in the 50s and the yeah. 60s and they're ve- and they're ve- just incredibly speculative as to what life on our neighboring planet could be like Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's such a such a fun time of uh, human imagination, you know. Right, so,
0: right. It's amazing how much has changed. Like even the number of planets that we have now, you know, that's all changed from from what I grew up knowing.
1: Yeah, I was I was talking to my students uh, about that recently. I mean, of course, I talk a lot about how many exoplanets were found, which is now mm-hmm. more than. 5,000, which, wow. like I said, uh, only three decades worth of work. It's pretty incredible. But, um, of course, uh, a big event was uh, the whole changing classification of Pluto. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that certainly has changed during our lifetimes. Uh, and, and that's really interesting. Um, not so much from a scientific point of view, I think, because, right. you know, Pluto doesn't care what we call it. But from a cultural point of view it's incredibly fascinating cuz Pluto was the only planet that had been discovered by an American. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's really interesting how ingrained Pluto became as a cultural phenomenon in in the United States and therefore the backlash that happened when we changed our mind about what to call it. So
0: I find it sad about Saturn now, too, you know, the news about Saturn and the rings right now, because, I mean, there's nothing more beautiful to look at through a telescope or fascinating than Saturn, you know, to to see that with the rings around it. What, you know, as 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 a professor scientist, what do you think is causing this thing to happen to the rings?
1: Oh well, so you might need to be. specific. There's a lot of oh, things sorry. happening happening okay, okay, with with the, with the rings. But are you talking about the degradation of the yes, rings? Yes, the degradation of the rings. Yeah. I should
0: have been more specific. Sorry. Yes.
1: Yeah. Oh no no no. It's, it's 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 fine. I I look at a lot of um news stories and a lot of publications from my colleagues and Saturn, of course, and the rings are very mm-hmm. I intensely studied. Um. The, the, the rings have a lot of dynamics and there's always interesting stuff coming about them. But, but, you know, the, the rings of Saturn, um, it's, it's interesting because there's still a lot of, uh, shall we say disagreement about how old the rings of Saturn are. Some of them, uh, some people claim that the, the rings of Saturn are actually as old as the solar system, like four and a hmm. half billion years. I find that unlikely. And, and okay. that's just because of what you're talking about, which is that, uh, the rings like that they don't last forever. Uh, that's because you as, as sparsely populated as they are they they do collide the the material collides with each other and kind of grinds itself down to right, dust right. plus it gets collected onto the moons that are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they do disappear with time. Um, but there's hope because uh, if the rings of Saturn are relatively young, then mm-hmm. that means there's plenty of opportunity to form new ones and in fact uh there's a lot of the speculation is about what is fueling the rings so mm-hmm. there's uh cometary impacts there's uh there's the moons themselves which can be crushed by the gravity of saturn and mm-hmm. form new rings mm-hmm. i mean uh uranus also has rings right uh which which is which is very very interesting and and i studied those rings as well and and one thing i i i recently published about is if jupiter is more massive than all of the other planets combined how Mm -hmm. come it doesn't have rings
0: right right uh
1: and so there's there's some good reasons for that uh because jupiter gets hit all the time by objects Mm -hmm. uh we saw that um i don't know if you remember back in I think it was 1994 when there was yes. a comet called Shoemaker-Levy hit and uh, the Hubble Space Telescope had not long been up at the time and so it pointed at Jupiter, everything pointed at Jupiter and we learned a lot. But, but all this to say is that Jupiter has been hit. It, it produces new rings. Uh-huh. But around Jupiter, they don't last very long and that's um, because it has the Galilean moons, uh-huh. uh, which kind of s- sweep all of that up. Uh, Saturn, um, uh, I... I, uh, as you're probably getting from what I'm saying, I'm not too sad about it. For right. one thing, I think this is kind of circle of life stuff. But also because I think th- there'll be more, there'll be more rings. Um, we we we're looking at Saturn at a particular time in its history mm-hmm. when um, its rings are on the decline, which means that there was a time in the past when the rings of Saturn, and this is hard to imagine, would have been even better. And I think that that time will come again.
0: That's true, and I think we're at a point in time, too, where in our lifetime we're probably not going to see it anyway, so we just enjoy what we have. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: It's the next generation down the line, the Picards, right? They're the ones that are going to see all that stuff. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll be actually go there in person. And like.
0: Yeah, see, do samples. the slingshot around Saturn, right? The other thing I was going to bring up is I remember uh, how funny it was in the old science books as well, and I remember one of the, the – the certain things that stick in your head as a kid, and I remember – when they were talking about Saturn and how gaseous it is and how, well, if you took Saturn and put it in the middle of the Atlantic ocean, it would float. Yes. And I remember as a kid sitting there thinking, that would be really cool.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I think, you know, yeah, sometimes when i talk about that this is of course a reference to the density of Saturn because it's right it the density is less than one gram gram per cubic centimeter which is the density of water <laughs> therefore it would float you know yeah. so i would love to see the bathtub in which we could conduct that experiment <laughs> we certainly true. wouldn't want to do it on earth like if as as you suggested we we put Saturn in the Atlantic ocean, we'd yeah. all be dead. would all be dead. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be so much as putting Saturn in the Atlantic ocean as putting the Atlantic ocean on
0: Saturn. Saturn. Right? Yeah. So... yeah. That'd be pretty funny. That'd be pretty funny. So what do you think, you know, as you look at the universe from your perspective, because I know I've always followed Carl Sagan. I followed uh, Jack Horkheimer, you know, because of PBS thing, the keep looking up thing I would see. Do you, what changes have you seen, you know, because we're talking about like Saturn's rings right now and, yeah. you know, the exoplanets, what changes have you seen on, 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 on all the, on the planets in our solar system as opposed, you know, now as opposed to what it was before.
1: Right. Yeah. It's um, uh, the example I gave earlier. I mean, that was uh, about Venus and about how right. during the, during the uh, early sixties in particular, um, there were a lot of people speculating. And and by the way, part of, part of the reason that was the case for Venus is because it has this thick layer of clouds. Uh, mm-hmm. So it just made people's imagination go nuts. That was not the case with Mars. Um, Mars, where it was speculated that there could be life on the surface, not just life, but intelligent life, because mm-hmm. of the canals that Percival Lowell thought he saw uh-huh. in the late 19th century. Um, we very quickly figured out that that was not, caused by an intelligent civilization because we could see the surface of Mars through telescopes. It's got a very thin atmosphere. We can just see it. Venus, we couldn't, we couldn't see it. And so we had to actually go there and find out. But until we Uh went there, we, we weren't really sure. Uh, And so there's a lot of things like that, that I've seen through, through, through my lifetime where it's, it's, it's these deep mysteries that we don't know unless we actually conduct the experiment that, that, that uh, I, I think have been, Really, really cool. Um, And so uh, uh, things like looking for evidence of past water on Mars, I think that that Mm -hmm. continues to be a a mystifying thing, which is pretty amazing. Uh, And uh, um, as I mentioned, I I study Venus a lot. Sure. And uh, one of the recent discoveries we had for Venus is that it's still volcanically active which we also wow. weren't sure about. So, And that's important because it means if it's volcanically active, it's geologically active, mm-hmm. which means that there's all kinds of uh, interesting geology at the surface going on, which relates to whether it could have passed uh, in the past being habitable like Earth and had liquid water oceans. Um, I so, uh, so, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of the big discoveries have been uh, from outside of our solar system finding five thousand planets and as that relates to our solar system what that sure. has really done is it's answered this fundamental question is our solar system normal or not mm-hmm. because our solar system has four rocky planets close in and four giant planets further out mm-hmm. and and because that's all we knew we thought that's Maybe that's normal and it's not. It's not normal. Um, Our solar system is really, really weird. And that to me is a fundamental thing to to figure out why that's the case. Because, especially when it comes to talking about life, you know, because when we talk about life has evolved on Earth and what are the reasons behind that, and it's Mm -hmm. very easy to be anthropic about that and say, well, here are all the unique features of Earth, right? So, Earth is a certain distance from the sun it has a large moon um and there are many things that you can look at like the Earth's magnetic field even and say you know is that important but even beyond the earth we can look at things like we have a giant planet called jupiter which as we we're discussing earlier gets hit occasionally and when jupiter gets hit it could mean that it rescued earth from being hit so it, it kind of you know it, <laughs> it was like this absorber of a potential impactor that may have caused an extinction event. Didn't help the the poor dinosaur 65 million years ago, unfortunately. Jupiter right. was sleeping on the job, I guess. But um <laughs> but I mean, is is having a Jupiter-sized planet important? And mm-hmm. if it is, then finding these planetary systems around other stars kind of tells us a lot about that because we're finding that. Jupiter-like planets are pretty rare. I think that's one of the most amazing things to me is just realizing how unusual our planetary system is and what that could mean for the development of life.
0: Absolutely fascinating. How does one find an exoplanet?
1: Uh, with great difficulty. So, <laughs> it's it's Well, so more seriously, the, the way I put it is that this is a classic case of technology Having to uh, catch up to ideas mm-hmm. because uh, this 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 idea that other stars have planets is of mm-hmm. course not new in fact the idea of other stars having planets actually goes back thousands of years like the the Greeks were very prolific in talking about this Epicurus for one was a Greek philosopher who spoke about the plurality of worlds and that they probably have life just like Earth mm-hmm. um, there were periods of Human history, uh, particularly during the Middle Ages, say 13th, 14th, 15th century, where saying things like that could get you in a lot of trouble. Uh-huh. And so there was a there was a period there when when that kind of um, those kind of ideas were squashed. But then after that, uh, in in the last couple of hundred years, uh, people were thinking about this a lot, as well as how could we actually do this? How could we verify it? And uh, the uh, 20th century, in particular, early 20th century, people started to develop telescopes far better than they had been able to before. And they thought maybe they could, uh, it, maybe they can't see the planet itself because that's really hard trying to see a faint object next to a very bright object, meaning its star. But mm-hmm. maybe they can in- infer its existence indirectly by observing the effect the planet has on the star in other words the gravitational effect of the planet makes would make sense. the star wobble and and so there are a lot of attempts to do that uh and some claims of planet discoveries back in the 30s and the 40s but these are very difficult observations to do especially from the ground when you're looking through the earth's atmosphere and mm-hmm. if you're trying to detect the very tiny movement of a star looking through the atmosphere, which makes the star move all over the place, which is what makes stars twinkle from the right. ground, um, then that's that's a real problem. And so these initial claims were refuted because the way science works, other people try and go do this, they couldn't see the same thing and it was traced down to the to the observations or the telescope itself. And so there were so many of these false alarms that by the time the 1980s came around, uh, people just didn't take uh, the search for planets around other stars seriously. It's hard to imagine that now, but during the '80s, if you went to a funding agency like NASA, um, it's it's kind of like that that scene uh, from Contact uh, near the beginning, where where Ellie, played by Jodie Foster, is going to all of these places to get private funding to continue her SETI work, and and they just laugh her out. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until finally somebody, you know, took a chance on it, you know, which is part of that narrative. But um, but that's what it was like to to say, I'm going to look for planets around other stars during the 1980s. But then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, during the 1990s, everything changed. That's when I got involved. Um, I make it sound like those two things are, are yeah. connected. I came in and saved it. No, it wasn't like that. <laughs> um, I, I I came in because of the hard work of others before me who had enabled this, who had essentially developed the technology to actually be able to measure the motion of stars due to the gravitational effect uh, using technology that was just un- unbelievable. Uh, mm-hmm. And so So that's the way that many of the hundreds of planets have been found using that method, the gravitational method. The vast majority of the more than 5,000 planets found so far have been actually found using the transit method, which is also an indirect technique. And the way that works is that you observe the planet pass between you and the star, and it blocks some of the light as it crosses the star. That makes sense. And so if you're able to measure the brightness of the star, so we're not measuring the movement, now the brightness, um, then you detect or you infer the presence of the planet. And not only that, because the bigger the planet, the more light it blocks, that mm-hmm. means that you get a measurement of how big the planet is. And that was what enabled NASA's Kepler mission to work, which was launched in 2009 and discovered on its own several thousand mm-hmm. planets. And that that mission was our first deep dive into finding planets the size of earth. And so that's when I started to get involved in thinking about planetary habitability, because when we started finding planets, the size of earth, I realized that that meant that we were also finding planets, the size of Venus, because they're the same size. Mm-hmm. How would we tell the difference between a habitable planet and an uninhabitable planet? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about now, But it's, a, it's to answer your question, I mean, most of the planets have still been found using these indirect techniques. Mm-hmm. Hopefully within the next couple of decades, we will start to be able to directly image uh, sure. Earth-sized planets around other stars, which will be fantastic, of course.
0: Well, that's something people don't realize when you talk about the Earth's atmosphere is how really unstable it is. Now, people that are, uh, have telescopes like I do, we get it. I mean, you're sitting there watching something and it's bouncing around. It's hard to keep a track on stuff unless you have a telescope that can track that stuff, which I do at this point. But um, yeah. it's really hard. And then the other thing people don't realize is the first thing you learn is. As a backyard astronomer is, when you're looking up, even with binoculars, there's a difference between what a star and a planet looks like when you're looking up. You can tell the difference because a star is always a pinpoint of light, no matter how you look at it, and a planet is always going to be round. Yeah. But it's just that you have to train your eye to look for that stuff. And I can't imagine how difficult it would be with the telescopes. I mean, you guys deal with some real nice telescopes like Palomar and all those places. But I can't imagine how difficult it would be to have to look, like you say, behind the stars and around the stars to find these more fainter planets.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a really hard problem to to solve, and, uh, and and you're absolutely right about the effect of the atmosphere. I mean, that's the analogy that's always made is that if it's same as looking at an object at the bottom of the pool, you know, and it kind of just goes all because of the turbulence of the water. Right. Um, if for the for the big telescopes uh, like Palomar and like Keck, we do use something called adaptive optics, which essentially shoots a laser into the atmosphere. I mean, it's it's a really incredible technology that we're able to shoot a laser into the sky and then use that to monitor the turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere in real time and mm-hmm. and correct for it. Uh, so so that does a pretty good job. Of course, there's no substitute for going to space, which is right. you know, the, the NASA Kepler mission, uh, to be able to measure the brightness of these stars to discover Earth-sized planets, it really needed very, very stable conditions, which we're just not able to do from, from the ground. But but yeah, you you you're right. A lot of people don't realize um uh what we can and cannot do from the ground. Right. And and, you know, one thing I say to, I, you know, I, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago where I, I asked people to raise their hands if they have seen uh, Venus in the night sky. And only about a, th- a quarter of the people raised their hands. And I, oh. And I said to those of you who didn't raise your hands, I have very good news for you. You're wrong. <laughs> because, I mean, Venus is the third brightest object in the sky. Uh, there's absolutely, if you know, if if you're listening to this, there's absolutely no way you have not seen it. You've seen mm-hmm. it. You you just maybe did, didn't know what you're looking at. It's very, uh, and by the way, it's very high in the sky at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's at seven p.m. in California now. Uh, like right. about an hour from now, if right. people go outside and look west, they'll see this bright star ex- uh, uh, above the horizon. Except it's not a star; it's our twin planet. Uh, and you know, I, I'm sure you've been doing this for many years. And you just kind of you you look for the objects that aren't twinkling, but also you you learn where the ecliptic is, right, the, the right. plane of the solar system, and you just kind of look along there. And, yeah.
0: and you know, guys, also there's a lot of cool software out there that you can download for your cell phone that's free.
1: Oh, know? cheating, cheating! You can
0: cheat. <laughs> it shows you what's over your head, you know? And you're like, oh, yeah, you know.
1: It's so funny, yeah. Like uh, my my grad students, when we'll be outside and we'll be do, doing some stargazing, and they'll pull their phone out and they'll have their they'll, they'll have their app out, you know, like oh yeah, that's that's that. Yeah. And you know, after having spent my teenage years memorizing star maps, I'm just right shaking my head. At least,
0: I agree get, with that, Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I admit I have, I, I have one on my phone, but I don't use it all the time. I do sometimes. <laughs> Depends which telescope. Oh, I, I, I
1: use it too. I use it. <laughs>
0: because I, there's one thing I can't stand in. Like I have an older mead telescope that's a four inch and trying to aim that sucker and get that sucker right where it needs to be, you know, with that, with that, with that viewfinder is a pain in the butt. So yeah, sometimes I, that, yeah. that goes into play with that software. But, um, least you can tell, I'm excited about this. I love this stuff. I I can understand too, where you know, in order to like track these things better, you know, these exoplanets, you would have to need something that's outside of the Earth's atmosphere, like Hubble or something to stare at. Was Hubble able to locate anything like that, or 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 was it just taking pictures of the of the nebulas and all that?
1: Yeah, when I mean, one of the interesting things in astronomy, uh, when you look at the profile of a mission like Hubble, Mm -hmm. uh, the thing to thing to realize is that by the time a mission is launched. It's mm-hmm. already been decades in the making, especially a flagship mission mm-hmm. like Hubble and like uh, James Webb. So mm-hmm. James Webb, I mean, uh, they essentially started planning that before even Hubble was launched, right? Mm-hmm. So so that's that's been a long time. And and so when people start planning these missions, they have uh, a particular science goals in mind, like they want to answer this question or that question right. about the universe. And uh, and so science doesn't stay still, you know, and it changes. And so uh, James Webb uh, evolved a lot during the discovery of exoplanets in order to be useful for that. Now, right. now Hubble preceded all of that. Right. Uh, when Hubble was launched, we didn't know of any planets around other stars, or at least not a not hadn't been confirmed around any any planets. Oh, sorry, any stars like the sun. Um, that. Came in the mid '90s, mm-hmm. uh, and so Hubble was really designed to do very faint deep sky kind of work, and that means galaxies, extragalactic, you know, cosmology. That, and, that. Right. and 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 it did some fantastic uh, work on that. Some of the earliest uh, famous images from Hubble are called the Hubble Deep Field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, if you're not f- familiar with that, you should, uh, for, for your listeners, they they should check it out. There's, there's the Hubble deep field. And then later on, I, they did what I think, I believe it's called the ultra deep fields, you know, and essentially that means just taking Hubble and staring at a patch of sky that otherwise just looks like black space, right. but then you do this long exposure with Hubble and it turns out it's full of galaxies, uh, which is incredible. But um, so that's what it was designed for. So now when exoplanets came along, uh, and particularly when we started discovering planets using the transit method, which is just measuring the brightness, then Hubble became a really useful uh, resource for following up on these planet discoveries. Uh, Because it was designed for these deep, uh, narrow field kind of work, Uh it wasn't really designed to do wide field surveys. And so uh, it it, Hubble has never really been used to discover planets, but Mm -hmm. it has been extremely valuable in doing follow up work on planets we have discovered to to get better measurements of the transit so we can get a better estimate of the radius of the planet and even to do some atmospheric work as the planet passes between us and the star and as the light passes through the atmosphere on its way to us, we see absorption features and so uh, so uh, it's that, that's been the case with a lot of these missions that mm-hmm. uh, that we've kind of had to shoehorn in the science right um, after their launch just because the science has, has changed so much
0: that was my next question now because you know over the years the, the, like growing up you know with all those books that there was speculation about what Venus is made out of you know, and what, what 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 Saturn is and all this now in the case of these deep, deep, deep sky exoplanets how are you guys able to come up with a conjecture of, of of what their atmosphere and stuff's like
1: yeah that's 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 kind of the era in which we now find ourselves um due largely to the the james webb space telescope um Mm -hmm. and we've been waiting for this for for a long time uh and what i mean by that is in the early 2000s soon after we started discovering planets using the transit method it was very quickly realized that there's a lot of different ways in which we can exploit the data from a transiting planet and Mm -hmm. one of the one of the most important ways is the the way I just mentioned, which is that as as the planet is crossing the disk of the star, the light from the star passes through the essentially the limb of of the planet, which is the, the, the very thin atmosphere on its way to us and then you get absorption of light at certain wavelengths. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's that's really, really hard to do. That's another one of these things where if you try and do that from the ground, uh, then it's, it's a huge problem, but for a different reason than we mentioned before. Because when we were talking about trying to do ground-based observing before, we were talking about the effect of the turbulence of the Earth's atmosphere. Right. The other problem of the Earth's atmosphere is that it absorbs certain wavelengths. Uh, we, we call these um, uh, atmospheric windows, uh, and this is particularly true in the infrared Uh, in in infrared and the ultraviolet. And, of course, this is something we can all be very thankful for because uh, the absorbing effect of, say, ozone for ultraviolet is, you know, if it wasn't for that, (laughs) I mean, this was what happened during the 80s with the hole in the ozone layer in the southern hemisphere. And and the poor old Aussies, you know, got the brunt of that because we saw a rise in skin cancer rates. Um, And so we had to fix that. So... So these um, parts of wavelength space where the Earth's atmosphere is opaque is for our benefit. We have we have evolved to uh, uh, into that kind of space. Um, but if you're trying to be an astronomer and observe at those wavelengths, it's a problem Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it means that you're blind at some wavelengths because the Earth's atmosphere is absorbing it all. And this is particularly true when we're trying to measure uh, the atmospheres of planets around other stars because we get our most useful information often at near-infrared and infrared wavelengths that are just Mm -hmm. completely absorbed or largely absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere. And so... We did some early work with uh, another important telescope called the Spitzer Space Telescope, which Mm -hmm. is kind of like the Hubble. A lot, far few people know about Spitzer, Mm -hmm. uh, and I I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, uh, Hubble, uh, because it observes in the optical, it's able to produce these glorious images, which are which which the public love for very good reason. Spitzer observes in mostly in the infrared, and so the pictures. uh, in my opinion, equally beautiful, but far less uh, easy to explain to the public. Uh, mm-hmm. And plus, it didn't orbit the Earth. The, the The Spitzer Space Telescope was in what's called an Earth-trailing orbit. It followed the uh, Earth around the sun. And that's because it's an infrared space telescope. You don't want this giant radiator, which is the Earth, right. um, messing up your observation. So you had to have it far away. Um, and so uh, we... This is another case where Spitzer was planned decades before. You know, there weren't even any exoplanets, but it just so happened Spitzer was launched um, right before, no, right after we started discovering planets using the transit method. And we thought, oh my God, we can point Spitzer at these planets when they transit and start to measure their atmospheres. Mm-hmm. Now, because it wasn't designed for that, we did the best we could and we got some interesting measurements. But what we really wanted to do is we want to do this work of how do you tell the difference between Earth and Venus, you know, like terrestrial planets, things that right. were discovered by Kepler. And uh, and that really required James Webb. And so that's what we're doing now. A lot mm-hmm. of the time that's spent, because um, it's, it's it's hard to believe, but Webb has been uh, up for 18 months now. I believe it was wow. in our... Uh, Christmas was launched was, I think it was launched on uh, Christmas morning mm-hmm. uh, of uh 2021 and uh and then it was uh made its way safely to the Lagrange point where it looks, it's about a million miles from the earth uh further from the sun and uh and it, so it's been observing for well over a year now uh and a lot of that time has been spent on exoplanets and their atmospheres uh, and so, uh, and so it'll be interesting over the over the coming years to, to see what we get. At. We've already had some pretty interesting results, which I can talk about. But, um, sure. uh, but yeah, that that that's how we're doing it uh, with with James Webb.
0: Before we get to your results, because I, I do want to hear those. My next question is: How far is the nearest exoplanet from us, and how long would it take to get there? by standard uh, you know satellite or whatever
1: yeah you know um it's it's funny you ask, ask that cuz that is i would say that's the number one question i'm always asked by the media mm-hmm. when we have the uh, exoplanet discoveries is how far away is it and you know especially if we're talking about a planet like a rocky planet that's in the habitable zone mm-hmm. and um it the implication can be uh, or the subtext of the question can be, when can I pack my bags and go there? <laughs> you know, it's like, but but I uh, I kind of pessimis- pessimistically point out that at least at this part of human history, mm-hmm. all stars are at infinity. So it doesn't okay. matter whether it's like five light years away or a thousand light years away, to all intents and purposes, to a civilization that hasn't made it beyond the Earth's moon, uh-huh. it's at infinity <laughs> but to answer your question um the nearest exoplanet we we are now aware of what is by definition the nearest exoplanet and always will be uh-huh. because it orbits the nearest star which is proxima centauri and that's 4.22 light years away okay, uh, okay. and that it just so happens that that planet um it's probably rocky we're not sure Mm-hmm. Proxima Centauri, as you may know, is a, is a small M dwarf star, so mm-hmm. much cooler than the Sun, and it is in the habitable zone of it of Proxima Centauri, uh, and and so the, the, there's a lot to speculate about there, right? Like you know, but but. But by beware, because you know, we speculated a lot about life on the surface right. of Venus in the early sixties. Right. And look how that turned right. out. So
0: <laughs> I also think a lot of that comes from, you know, with, with the press asking these questions like this, from what's been going on you know, from from Voyager, from from you know, from from Viking, from Magellan. You know what I mean? I think that's where yeah. a lot of that's come from, because I mean we touched we we, we literally touched down on Mars. Yeah, you know, that's what people are thinking. Hey, are we able now with the technology that we have to go farther and touch down on these exoplanets? And I, I know the technology is not there yet because they're so far away, obviously.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 just piece of trivia: our our first soft landing on mm-hmm. the surface of another planet was in 1970, and cool. that was one of the Venera landers that landed on Venus. And our first picture from the surface of another planet was in 1975 that was also a Venera lander also on venus they were i mean before we se- before we sent viking to to mars mm-hmm. the united states and soviet russia were obsessed with venus it was, it was really interesting they, they were dumping all kinds of stuff on there it's pretty amazing
0: all right so let's talk about what you mentioned earlier tell me you know what what you guys have have already discovered about these exoplanets
1: yeah so um the, it's just been the first year of uh results that have come out so far Mm -hmm. but uh there's already been some some pretty interesting things one is that uh we have detected carbon dioxide on another planet now caveat to that that is a gas giant planet so it's not a terrestrial planet Mm -hmm. but but that's important because it shows that that we can quite i was going to say easily that i i I don't want to trivialize the the observations but 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 james webb is an extremely powerful tool um but but the signature of carbon dioxide was extremely obvious in those data uh and and so that that's good that we can do that uh Mm -hmm. when it comes to terrestrial planets one of the most studied systems is the trappist one system okay and um uh you and some of your uh, listeners may have heard about TRAPPIST-1 before. It's uh, It's been known since uh, about 2015, I think it was when it was discovered, and it's really captured the attention of a lot of people because it is a system of seven terrestrial planets, seven that we know of. There could be more that we haven't discovered yet, but there's at least seven planets in that system, uh, all terrestrial, three of which are within the Hubble zone. Um, or three slash four, depending on how you count the boundaries of the habitable Zone. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's also a system in which the star is extremely small. It's, uh, it's so small that it's barely a star at all. Uh, and because it's about 80 times the mass of Jupiter and the the threshold for becoming a star is around about 70 to 80 Jupiter masses. That's where wow. you reach the temperature in the core of 10 million degrees Kelvin where you can start f- uh, fusing hydrogen into helium. Uh-huh. And so it's right at that boundary. If it was any less massive, it would not be a star. So it's this tiny, tiny star, and it's got uh, this incredibly complex system of terrestrial planets. So that all seven of these planets that we know of transit, and that means that they're... Really prime candidates for pointing James Webb out during a transit and see if we can measure absorption features from their atmospheres. Uh, because al- also these small stars tend to live a long time, uh, because they burn their fuel very, very slowly. Uh, and so, uh, the, this particular star is about seven and a half billion years old, so it's about three billion years o- older than the, than the sun. And so you can only imagine the speculation that's gone on with this system, with 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 three terrestrial planets in the Haddle zone, an old old star. You kind of have this um, imagination about ancient civilizations that have just been like hanging around there for. A while. <laughs> but but this is uh, where the issues come in because. Uh, being such a small star, one of the problems with small stars is that they tend to be very active. And there's a lot of astrophysical reasons for that, which I won't go into, but basically it's to do with the magnetic fields of these stars and the way in which they uh, produce energy near the surface. It results in them having a lot of flares. Mm -hmm. So our sun is going through a period of high solar activity and creating fantastic aurora and things like that. But these small stars have that going on constantly at much higher amplitude, and that can have the effect of blowing the atmosphere away. And we know that atmospheres being blown away from planets is a thing because we've seen that for Mars, because there's a um, a NASA spacecraft called MAVEN which orbits Mars and monitors the loss of the Martian atmosphere, and we we've observed during periods of high solar activity just the atmosphere of Mars just Disappearing off in space, um, Earth also loses its atmosphere, but it replenishes it from volcanic emission. You know, so it's kind of like this net uh, net zero effect. But um, so for these planets orbiting Trappist One, they've been subjected to this high flare environment for seven and a half billion years. What is the effect of that? Well, we learned the answer to that recently. Because the uh, the innermost planet, uh, when it was observed during the first year of James Webb observations, uh, we've discovered that it actually has no atmosphere at all. It, huh. n- nothing. It's like it's it's I, it's about the, the size of the Earth, but it has no atmosphere, uh, and it's it's uncertain yet when it would have lost its atmosphere, uh, and. We're still uh, going to produce the same kind of measurements for the other planets in that system, Uh, but the early results from the subsequent planets is not looking good. And so this is kind of disparaging result when it comes to planets around these small stars because these small stars are some of the most common uh, types of star in the universe. And mm-hmm. so, from an astrobiology point of view, and um, are you familiar with the, the Drake equation? Yes. Which, yeah, which tries to calculate the number of advanced civilizations. Right. And one of the parameters in there is the number of stars which are suitable for hosting a habitable planet. And um, overwhelmingly, the biggest contributor to that factor are these small stars just because there's so many of them. Uh-huh. And if it turns out that these small stars, they're just unsuitable f- for hosting habitable planets, oh, that's, I mean, so there's still more work to be done on this uh-huh. because uh-huh. there's a number of factors that go into this. But um, if, if that were found to actually be the case, that would be a huge kick in the guts to the whole endeavor of astrobiology and the search for life. It could. Some people are already speculating that this is the reason for the Fermi paradox, like why we haven't uh, <laughs> or, or may not have encountered advanced civilizations, or at least that they're not, you know, hanging out in Times Square, as right. Neil deGrasse Tyson says. You know, if they did land there, would anybody notice? Right. Um, but uh, but that that could be a contributor. Just that these these small stars. Are, so. anyway, well, so so that's that's one of the big results. Myself and others have been thinking about.
0: One of the questions I had for that, though, is like, you know, we can't be the only planet that's inhabited. I mean, obviously. So when you guys, are, when, you, when the scientists are looking for stuff, are they measuring it according to life here on Earth? See, the, the, this is what my perplexing thing is, because this, these other societies may not have to survive like we have to survive. They, they, they may have a different air environment and everything.
1: Yeah. You know, I've been talking to my colleagues a lot uh, about this. Um because uh there's a there's a whole resurgence of uh, of the field of searching for techno mm-hmm. uh and, and as as you may be aware there's, there's theres biosignatures in which we're we're measuring the composition of an atmosphere and looking for signs of chemical disequilibrium, mm-hmm. which might be evidence of of biological activities. Such as if you have molecular oxygen along with methane, which uh, very quickly react with each other, and so the methane right. preferentially would, would would be removed, and then you'd end up with carbon dioxide and water. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but that that's just like biology at the surface, which which would be the case for the vast majority of Earth's history thus far. Right. Uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't require any any advanced civilization that can broadcast across space. Well, the the some of my colleagues look for techno signatures. They're looking for megastructures or or evidence of of night like uh night lights on the night side of a planet. You know, all all, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. all kinds of interesting ideas. The big difference between these two efforts is that biosignatures, even biosignatures on its own is is extremely Difficult because, like you said, uh, we—it's extremely difficult to separate yourself from an Earth-centric yeah. viewpoint. Which is this is how we know how life worked on Earth, uh, mm-hmm. and so this is what we're going to look for for elsewhere. Uh-huh. Which, which is fine, but I mean, we we shouldn't um, box ourselves in, and it's uh-huh. it's really hard not to. Um, and there are people who try and look for all the possible chemical reactions, you know, the full parameter space, much of which may not have ever happened on Earth. Right, right. But they, they, they try and think about the, the other possibilities. Um, some people even say, uh, we don't really know what we're looking for, but we'll know it when we see it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not convinced that's true either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think many times we'll, we'll see evidence for life, but we won't even really recognize it. But but that's that's the case for biosignatures, where you all you're trying to do is do a traceability matrix of all um, the possible chemical reactions and and the biochemical reactions. Now, when it comes to technosignatures, on top of all that, you're overlaying uh, things like cultural motivations and all of the stochasticism of of those kinds of pathways. Uh-huh that go well beyond our current culture. And I think that's, that's uh, many times more difficult to predict what the motivational uh, and, and cultural reasons would be for an advanced civilization to, to uh, do wh- whatever it's doing. Now, a lot of the stuff that's been written about this has uh, been within the context of energy consumption. Uh, which is uh, the which is the premise behind the Kardashev scale? Uh, a type one civilization utilizes all the energy from the planet. A type two uses all the. I actually, I think maybe type yeah type one uses all the energy from the planet. Type two uses all from the star. Um, type three can use all the energy from uh, from uh, from its galaxy. But it's this requirement of energy in order to sustain. Whatever it is, like whether it be the biology, whether it be the society, all of these things require energy. And so, provided that you know, in the same way, when we talk about life, there tends to be a mantra of follow the water, right? Um, which you know we can we can discuss about whether whether that's the right approach either, because once again, that's Earth-centric way of looking at it, right? But but when it comes to advanced civilizations, uh, there can be a premise of follow the energy. Uh mm-hmm. which which may be okay, but it's still extremely broad. Mm-hmm. And um and, and yeah, I I think it's a really, really difficult problem to solve.
0: Well, you know, even here on Earth, the, the, let's think about that through the history of the earth. There's us that live in the cities, and there's the people like the Navajo and the people the, the um the Aborigines that live out in the outback in the desert. And they survived just fine on however they're doing it. If we from the city went out there to do that, uh, you know, just all of a sudden, all that was all our stuff was taken away. There'd be a lot of people that, that weren't so good. You know what I mean? So I, so I think that's part of it because with these with these other outlying planets, they're surviving based on whatever their environment is.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 It, it that that's true. That um that uh one of the tenants, of course, of natural selection is adaption mm-hmm. to the environment. Yep. It has to it has to adapt to the because that's what you're given. You gotta mm-hmm. find find that pathway within that environment. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's just uh trying to understand what are the boundaries. So provided that the boundaries of your environment don't move too far to the left or too far to the right, right. you can get away with that, even if it's if if it's in an extremophile sense. Yeah. Um but it's really hard to know what what the boundaries are, right? And depending right. on the bio, biological pathways, right? You know, I mean, there, there's you can you can start with, and some, sometimes my conversation with my colleagues goes this way uh, because you you can get disagreement on so many of these issues, uh-huh. but, but there, so then you'll start okay. Where can we agree that life couldn't exist? All right, let's start with the surface of the sun, right? <laughs> or, or or something like that. Like let's just get somewhere we agree and then talk from there. Um right. but it's but it's interesting how how quickly you can uh find um things that or pathways that other people may not have thought of.
0: So what's next for you? Uh
1: well, so um uh as I, as I mentioned, I, I, what I tend to do is I'm thinking about uh, what are the processes that result in a pla- planet turning out like Earth. Uh, that is the long-term sustainability of temperatures that allow for surface liquid water oceans uh-huh. where you can have biochemistry occur. And I look at Venus as a counterpoint to that. Okay, so that's a case where it went wrong. Uh-huh. and um, and I look at all the various factors for a planet, meaning the uh, the size, the mass, the distance from the star, meaning the energy received at the top of the atmosphere, the magnetic field, whether it has a moon, and uh, other things that I mentioned, like the effect of other planets in the system. You know, uh-huh. you, you can you can literally list out hundreds of things uh-huh. that can influence the evolution of a planet through time. Then the challenge is to rank those you know which is the most important to which is the least important um because uh you can think of uh something like the tilt of the earth's axis right is is, is that uh and and that's controlling the seasons but but like you said there's there's still evolutionary pathways that mm-hmm. would adapt to those different seasonal changes and so is that a, a an important effect or is it more of a minor effect and so right. yeah so what i've been um uh been working on is that and and in order to do that properly i'm trying to learn more about venus because we know very little about venus right and if venus was once like earth like it had surface liquid water oceans and that's pretty profound because it could mean that say two billion years ago we had two planets that look well really like twins right um and uh and and that might be Good news in the search for life in showing that having surface liquid water is, is, is maybe more common than we thought, but mm-hmm. also a warning in the sense that if you have it, you can also lose it, Right, <laughs> right? Which, is, which, is, which is what the purpose of Venus might be, is a warning to all of us. Um, and so I'm, I'm on the science team for uh, some of the new NASA missions that are going back to Venus to try and uh, solve some of these. These Fantastic.
0: Of, yeah. How can people find you, sir?
1: Uh, well, they can uh, find me on Twitter. I have a, a, a Twitter handle called um, uh For those of you who, who know your um, mythology, uh, you, you might recognize the word Cytherian. That's C-Y-T-H-E-R-E-A-N. That means pertaining to the planet Venus. And so oh. exocitherean, obviously, is a reference to my search for um, other Venuses. Um, and they can also uh, find stephenkane.net is, is my main website where, where uh-huh. they can look me up.
0: All right. Thank you so much for coming on. This was fantastic. Oh, it was my pleasure. pleasure. It was a lot I'm of fun. You. Oh, my gosh. I'd love to get you on again to talk more about this. This is crazy. I could sure, go for hours on this subject.
1: Me too.
0: All right, <laughs> sir. Well, thank you so much for being on, and it, it, it was a treat. All
1: right, and I thanks will a lot.
0: Definitely, I will definitely be in touch with you again. Okay. All right. Great. All right. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good all one. Right. My mouse. There we go. Wow, that was so much fun talking to him. I hope you guys learned a lot because I did too. I was absolutely fascinated. I, I could pick this man's brains for hours. I you know it's just it's just incredible. Tomorrow we're shifting gears a little bit and we're going to be talking with uh, Jeffrey Damalek about about Atlantis. So we're going to, there, there's some, some new information about Atlantis that's been coming out recently and he happens to have it. So we're going to be discussing that with him tomorrow and that'll be our usual time right now 6:30 6, uh, p.m. Pacific. All right? Okay. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, Share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And we're just simply trying to get the word out about our little old show. So if you could do that and help me out a little bit, that would be great. Again, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you saw tonight, please be sure to hit that follow button. Give us some thumbs up, some smileys. That would be great. If you're watching from YouTube, you like what you hear tonight and saw, give me some smileys and some thumbs up and all that good stuff. And, again, if you haven't subscribed, please do so already. I've got some contact information for him to show before the – before I close this out tonight. But I want to thank everybody for coming, and I, I really, really appreciate it. Be sure to visit the YouTube page. Everything we've done for the last three years is sitting over there. And we're going to get the website back up and running as well. have some technical difficulties with that. So that'll be this week sometime. And for the Patreon fans, it's finally happening. I keep saying it's happening, it's happening. The uh, interview with Gina Rock, Tinkerbell, is going to be up on Patreon tomorrow. I'm going to have that up for you guys to see tomorrow. And it's a really, really cool interview with lots of photos of her and it's, uh, it covers all her life. You know, so I, I think you're going to find that interesting. She's a fascinating lady to talk to. Anyway, I want to say good night, and I will see you guys tomorrow night. I mean, tomorrow. So let me go ahead and uh, give you his contact information, and uh, we can go from there. Okay, the websites are astro.ucr.edu forward slash members, forward slash faculty, forward slash Kane. Okay? And then you've got, a, uh, you got the other one that, uh, <laughs> that flashed up too. It was too fast. Uh, he, has a, he has a research paper out as well. Um, recheck this. It went too fast. I don't know. I think I set the settings too fast. But anyway, check that out. And uh, check out his website. And uh, just like the website he mentioned, it's all there. Okay. Well, thank you very much, everybody. I will see you tomorrow. And uh, have a good rest of your evening.